Sandy Heim. Welcome to the Principal Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks a lot for joining us. Really excited to have this conversation. Um, for all the listeners, Sandy Hine is a member of the Black Swan Group. She is an experienced hostage negotiator. She actually spent 23 years in law enforcement. Um, so she's got a really, really unique background for this mm-hmm. stuff. And she works alongside some of the best hostage negotiators like Chris Voss. So Sandy, please feel free to introduce anything that you think I might have missed. Um, you did a pretty good job, actually. So I do work with Chris Voss, Derek Gaunt, Brandon Voss um, at the Black Swan Group. We are a big family there. And all of us, with the exception of Brandon, have uh, a background as hostage negotiators, which is kind of, it's kind of our interesting shtick, I guess you could say. Brandon is the one who kind of keeps us all centered because Brandon is the one with the business background. So he comes in and says, okay, I get the law enforcement, but we're here. come this way so we can talk to business people. So it really is a great combination of people that I work with. Yeah. It seems like you've got between you know the five or six of you that you just mentioned, it seems like you've got a really unique perspective as to how to approach negotiation. Um, because you know when people think about hostage negotiation, they think it's only relevant for certain types of people obviously because of what we've labeled it but negotiation is such a broad skill that applies to like salespeople, anybody in business i mean a parent negotiating with their kid right like it's it's a skill that everybody needs to sharpen absolutely and we do get that from people sometimes why do you think you can come in here as having been a hostage negotiator and tell me how to do a business negotiation well i can tell you because we as a collective in the United States have a 93% closure rate as hostage negotiators. Some of the best people in business are around 30 to 40%. And that's the best people in the business. And Mm -hmm. the reason is because they're not using the human nature skills that, that we use. So every skill that we use um, speaks to human nature and the human nature response. And so if we can do that, to a 93% closure rate, meaning 93% of the time we get the person on the inside to do exactly what we want. If you're using these skills in business, then you know your success rate is going to go up. And we've seen that everywhere. People that we've coached, that we've trained, come back and tell us uh, how things have improved for them since they started using our skills. So that's a 50 to 60% discrepancy between the hostage negotiation side and some of the business people who consider themselves to be really, really well-versed negotiators. Um, yeah. Would you attribute that to just a lack of an understanding of human nature and some of the skills that you just referenced? Or would you say that it's because the stakes are kind of different? Um, I don't think the stakes are really different. Um, in mm-hmm. my profession, those were my stakes. In another person's profession, they have their stakes. So it just depends on, you know, where you are at any given moment. But I can tell you one thing, it's not, it's not because we're smarter. It's because we were given the tools, we practice the tools, and we make them work for us. Mm -hmm. And we understand how the human nature response can really get you what you want. Hmm. Okay. So let's start with unpacking some of these tools. What are some of the most commonly held mistakes that people have when it, as it relates to negotiation? Okay. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is they feel like they have to be in control. And when I say that, when people think they're in control is when they're doing all the talking. When actually you're not in control, if you're the one doing all the talking, you're the one who's giving the most information away. So if you could learn to listen more and talk less, 
that's when you're actually control, in control of a negotiation. And a lot of people don't understand that. Um, they feel like, well, for, for me to win or for me to be in control, I have to be the one that's controlling the conversation, i.e. doing all the talking. And that's, mm-hmm. that's just not the case. You get more from listening. And that's the one thing that most people underperform at is listening. Yeah. Um, so another thing that people do is they ask too many questions. You know, we don't ask questions at the Black Swan Group. We use labels and mirrors to gather our information. Only time we ask questions is in a very calibrated way. That's why we call them calibrated questions. We mm-hmm. ask what questions to shape people's thought, to kind of guide them. And we ask how questions to get them to implementation, to get things done. Um, other than that, we don't ask questions. We use all labels and mirrors because at least one third of the population does not like to be asked direct questions. So you never know if you're hitting that third. So you might as well just not ask any questions. Hmm. Um, it's the better way to be. That's really interesting that you say that because from everything that I've been told, and I think this is just a commonly held belief around negotiation is that you want to control the narrative, right? It's always, people always think, okay, you need to get in there. You need to set the tone. You need to control the narrative. You need to do the talking, right? But you're effectively saying the opposite, um, yep. which is really, really interesting. It's more about listening, asking the how questions, asking the, the what questions, having more of a pointed conversation as opposed to just spilling all the information and insights right away. Yes. And um, some people think, you know, well, I have to have the other side go first because that way I get all their information. Well, that's fine. But if it doesn't happen that way, you know, and you want it to go that way, it doesn't happen that way. You're scrambling your brain right from the start. So we like to say sequencing is important when you're using our skills. But the thing is, no matter how much you plan for a negotiation, when you start that negotiation, it's going to blow up in your face. It's just what happens. The best laid battle plans never survive first contact with the enemy. So whatever you plan for is never going to go off without a hitch. So what you have to do is get yourself in the right mindset, get yourself practiced in expecting the worst to happen. That way you don't have a reaction to it when you're, when you're in there in the middle of your negotiation and things aren't going your way. You have to just take a deep breath and, and stay calm and, you know, let it work out. You, you, you have more control over the conversation by using a label or using a mirror that actually sends the person you're talking to in the direction you want them to go in to give you the information that you want. And by basically giving them the illusion of control because you're allowing them to talk. Hmm. So you almost want them to feel as if they have the upper hand, right? And because they have the control, they're not on the defensive. Exactly. Which means you can have a better conversation with them. The, yeah. the thing about some of our content is people say, oh, well, you're, you use the skills to manipulate people. Well, no, that's not exactly what it is. Um, there's just a little bit of difference between manipulation and influence. And that's whatever your intent is. Our intent as negotiators is to get that trust-based influence. And when you have a trust-based influence over someone, you can actually kind of guide them to where you'll both be happy with the outcome. The way we look at it is how do we prosper together in a negotiation? That's the best outcome. Um, a lot of people are so focused on winning and making the other side lose mm-hmm. that they get carried away with that and they miss the whole focus of what they should be doing. So, you know, it's better if you look at whatever negotiation you're in, the person you're negotiating with isn't your adversary. The situation that you're both dealing with is the adversary. You should be a team because that's how you're going to get the best outcome. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how can you convey that point of you needing to be a team in order to achieve the best outcome rather than you being at odds with one another, right? Rather than you being perceived as being on both sides of the spectrum, how can you convey that you're actually a team and you're just trying to come to the best mutually agreeable outcome? What you're trying to do is build rapport. Rapport is really important. Um, Mm -hmm. People are six times more likely to make a deal with you if they like you. If they don't like you, they're less likely to make a deal with you. So Mm -hmm. you're trying to, number one, be likable. And number two, you're trying to make them feel like the most important in the world because showing deference to the other side is mm-hmm. one of the main things that you need to do. You need to seek to understand them and their motivations and where they're coming from before you try to make them understand you. And that is key because bottom line, everybody in the world wants to feel heard and they want to feel understood. And by using our skills, that's what you're doing. You're helping them feel heard and because of the way you're communicating with them, they you're demonstrating an understanding to them mm-hmm. that you understand them. So let's say you're in a situation where you have to negotiate with somebody who doesn't know you at all, right? So there's no preconceived notions on either side. There's no previous existing relationship. How do you build rapport? You build rapport by making it all about them. When you go into any conversation, if you start talking about yourself or pitching the gain or the value that you have right away, mm-hmm. the person on the other side is not going to be ready to hear what you have to say. And that's another mistake that people make. They pitch gain and they pitch their own value. They give their value proposition and don't understand why the other side is pushing back on that or not able to hear it. It's because in every negotiation, there are fears. And fear is that single biggest driver of human behavior and decision-making. So unless you address the fears that the other side comes in with, they can't hear what you're saying because they're hanging on to that fear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have a few different skills that we can use to do that. And one of the best ones, it's probably our, probably our most underrated skill, honestly, is the accusation audit. So with an accusation audit, you are preemptively labeling the negative. In other words, when you go into any conversation or negotiation, you're thinking about what are the negative things that the other side could be thinking about me or my company or what I'm trying to do here. And you put them out there up front. You go in and you say, you know what, you know, you may think this is a money grab. You may feel like we're trying to push you into something you don't want to do. Anything negative they could be thinking about you, you put those things out there first because then you diffuse that negative. And when you, you don't have to explain it. In fact, if you're explaining, you're losing. That's what Ronald Reagan says. So if you go in and you just want to mitigate that negative, you put the negative out there, you demonstrate, look, I know you're thinking this negative thing and this negative thing and this negative thing. And you don't have to explain anything about it. You just have to demonstrate that, you know, that's what they're thinking and it mitigates it right out of their mind. It diffuses it. So therefore you've cleared the, you've cleared away the negatives. So now anything you say, their mind is open to hearing it because they're not holding on to those negatives that they came into the conversation with. Then they can hear what you have to say because they're not preoccupied with anything negative. They may be thinking about you. That's interesting because going into it, you might think that their upper hand is that they kind of had their guard up a little bit, right? Like if you're trying to sell somebody something and you point out the flaw immediately, like you said, that really diffuses that tension and that really takes away their upper hand because they're like, oh, this person is being really upfront with me. Yes. 
So essentially, it takes permission and authority away from them to use whatever those negative thoughts thoughts are against you later in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, but I will tell you, people are afraid of this skill because what you're doing is you're shining a big old spotlight on yourself and talking about all the things that are negative that they may be thinking about you. And people have the mistaken feeling that by saying that you're introducing it, but you can't introduce a negative. It's either there or it's not. Mm-hmm. If the negative is there, then you're diffusing it. If the negative isn't there, they're going to look at you and kind of say, no, I wasn't thinking that. And they're not going to hold on to it. So you cannot introduce a negative that's not already there, but you can diffuse it if they are harboring it. So, you know, it's a, it's a thing. It's, it's, it's funny because it's one of the skills that we coach the most because it has the biggest impact, but it's also the one that people are the most afraid to use. Right. And so if I'm following correctly, it seems like you're saying that there's obvious negatives and then there's non-obvious negatives that you can try, that you can be trying to create just to control the narrative, Mm -hmm. just for that sole purpose. And if you point out, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, really, you, you, I mean, some of the negatives will be obvious when you go into a conversation with someone. Some Mm -hmm. of the negatives will not be. So what you're doing is, I mean, think back to science class when you were in high school and you had to come up with, you know, during a lab experiment, you had to come up with a hypothesis. And so your hypothesis was what? An educated guess. So when you're going into this conversation, you're making an educated guess about all the negative things they may be thinking about you. And that's what you're putting out there. So if you have one wrong, it doesn't matter because... If they're if they're not already harboring that negative, you're not going to introduce it to them, so they don't have to let go of that one because they never felt it. They're just kind of going to go. No, I wasn't really thinking that. Um, they're not going to soak it in though. So, you know, that fear is what keeps people from doing this. And when they don't mitigate that negative, they don't understand why they're getting pushback. And it's because they didn't diffuse that thought from the very beginning. Got it. So, what's the next step after the accusation audit? Um, you want to summarize. You want to summarize what brought you there. And people say, well, how do you summarize at the meeting, at the, at the beginning of a meeting, if you've never done anything before? Well, you, there's a reason you're there. Summarize why you're there. You know, you just, okay, so we set this meeting up so we could do blah, blah, blah. And we were doing this and that and the other and summarize all the interaction you've had so far, even if it's email or phone call or whatever it's been. Mm-hmm. And then you ask the other side, what did I miss? Because if they're here for a certain reason and you didn't cover that in your summary, they're going to let you know. And then you, it's just information. All It's all about gathering information. So you know, once you summarize why you're there for the meeting, you know, we tell people sequence it this way. It doesn't always go this way because even though you call the meeting, the other side, if they're one of these people who is insistent upon being in control, right after you finish your audits, they may take control. They may want to do the summary. That's fine. Let them. We'll let them. The more they're talking, the more information you're getting. Um, the thing that people fail to do is when someone is talking and giving you information, you want to label what they're saying or you want to mirror to get more information. Um, Both of those demonstrate that you're listening. A label really does demonstrate that you're understanding because if you label, and this is going to, it's going to sound weird. That was an audit, by the way. (laughs) That was me auditing the negative for you. you. This is going to sound weird. Diffusing, (laughs) right. Yep. (laughs) Yep. So this is going to sound weird. So I'm prepared Um, for it to sound weird. You're prepared for it to sound weird. When you're using labels and mirrors, what? well, not mirrors, but when you're using labels, what you're looking to label is what they're not saying. So if you're listening to a conversation that you're having with someone and they're giving you all this information, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, 
Why are they feeling this way? Why are they saying what they're saying? You're staying curious about what their motivation is. And so then you kind of make a guess at a label about where it's coming from. And the la- and actually you used a good label a little bit earlier when, <laughs> when you're building me up for that last question that you had. But in a label, the structure is it seems like, it sounds like, it looks like, it mm. feels like. Mm-hmm. So then you can say, um, yeah, well, it, it seems like you might be hesitant about this, this, and this. Just based on what they're saying and where they're going in the conversation, they're kind of avoiding talking about these things over here. So if you say, well, it seems like you might have a problem with this, this, and this, and then they're going to go and explain to you whether or not they have a problem with it. Even if you label them wrong, it's okay because we have certain laws of negotiation gravity. And one of them says that the urge to correct is irresistible. So people cannot wait to tell you how wrong you have it. And so that's another thing that gives them the illusion of control is they're telling you, no, you don't have it right. This is not how it is. It's like this. Well, that's fine. Correct me all day long because when you correct me, you're giving me honest information because people don't correct you with a lie. People correct you with the truth. So you know at that point in time, if you labeled it wrong, the information that they're giving you is the most truthful response you could ever get. And it's very good information. So it's okay to be wrong is what Mm -hmm. I'm saying. Right, right, because they lay it out there for you, right? So that yep. even if you have the wrong label, they will give you the right label. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay, so yeah, any intuition of that you're having of what that label might be, you should just say it after you've diffused the situation and summarized, because that will enable the person to, like you said, you said it really well. Um, people don't correct you with something that's wrong; they correct you with the truth. Something like that. You said it better than I did, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I love that you mentioned intuition because we talk about tactical empathy. That's the basis of everything we do. It's tactical. All these skills are basically getting you to tactical empathy. So tactical empathy, um, it's the calibrated application of emotional intelligence is essentially what it is. With tactical empathy, you take your intuition, meaning all those things you're feeling during the conversation and you vocalize them. The thing with people is they have intuition. They don't know how to listen to it. And they have all these ideas about what's going on on the other side, but they don't vocalize them. It's when you vocalize that intuition that you're getting to tactical empathy. So, you know, shortcut way to look at it is that gut feeling that you're having, the little hair raising on the back of your neck, the little voice in the back of your head that people tend not to listen to because they think they're in control up here, but really the back of their mind is is where they should be listening. Mm -hmm. If you vocalize that stuff, that's going to reach the other side very quickly. And the reason this is important is because your conscious mind processes 40 bits of information per second. Your unconscious mind, now stand by, this one will blow your mind, processes 20 million bits of information per second. So if you can learn, yeah, if you can learn how to trust your gut and trust that intuition and not fight it in your own mind and negotiate against yourself as far as using it, you can reach the other side a lot more quickly, but you have to be willing to kind of trust that voice and trust that feeling in your gut and, and without fear, put it out there. Right. And that's, and that is, that is what labeling is, right? When you, when you have an intuition or an inclination about a certain thing, and then you call it out, you label it. If it's correct, that is, I guess, labeling, but even if it's not, you'll still get more information to guide your next decision. Well, and that's the thing people get, people, People get concerned because they don't want to label negatives. 
they only want to label positives, which isn't a bad thing because when you label positives, it actually reinforces them. But when you label negatives, it diffuses them. So really you get more bang for your buck when you label a negative than you do labeling a positive because the positive, when you label that positive, it's going to give somebody that little feeling of, Oh yeah, you get me. When you label a negative, they're going to go, Oh wow, you got me. You know what I mean? You mm -hmm. really get me on a deeper level when you, when you point out the negatives, people are afraid to do that. So what they do is they go into a conversation or a negotiation with an elephant in the room that both sides know is there and nobody points it out. So what's happening during that difficult conversation or that negotiation is that big old elephant is trampling all over everything you're trying to do because that negative is just hanging in the room. If you just go ahead and point it out, it mitigates it. Mm, so you have to call out the elephant in the room. They, there, there should be no elephant in the room. Right. And the thing is, if the elephant is in the room is, say, their, their negative feelings about something that you're doing, yep. use a label and it seems like something that I'm doing um, is making you unhappy. You don't have to say, hey, look at that elephant in the room. You know, you just, yeah. It seems... It seems like something I'm doing is making you uncomfortable, unhappy, mm -hmm. whatever that is. That's inviting them to bring out that negative. You're pointing out that you understand that negative is there and you're giving them permission to talk about it is what you're doing. Yeah. Um, a lot of people don't want that. Yeah. But, because a lot of times you might not even know what the elephant really is. You just know, you just have a sense that somebody is uncomfortable about this conversation because of X, Y, or Z factor. So if you just call mm -hmm. it out, they'll share the elephant with you or hopefully, I mean, that's the intent, right? Is that you hope that they'll share right. it with you, but you, you might not necessarily even know what the elephant in the room actually is. Mm -mm. No, but you, what you do is you watch, um, you, uh, Troy likes to say you gather information with your eyes and that's what you do. It's, you know, it's, it's easier to do that when you're face to face, but you know, in the world of hostage negotiations, we're never face to face with the person. We're always on the phone. Right. So that's why listening is so important because you can hear all these little things in the background. You can hear a sigh, you can hear a dog bark, you can hear a baby cry, you can hear, you know, the doorbell ring. You can hear what you can hear a lot of stuff in the background that you can use to kind of picture what this person's world is looking like at the moment. And that's what you're listening for. You're listening for their narrative. Their life narrative is what you're listening for at the highest level. Um, that's what we call empathetic listening. And that is exhausting. So in the middle of a hostage or crisis negotiation, you're listening at that level for a long number of hours sometimes. By the time you're finished, you are spent. You are completely exhausted. Most people are only listening on level one or two out of five. They listen to get the gist of what the other side is saying, or they listen for rebuttals, which is where a lot of people live. I'm listening to you so that I can address what you're saying right away instead of listening for where it's coming from or why you're feeling that way which is the next level up. So if you can get past always thinking someone's talking to you so you can give them a response or, or fix a problem for them and just listen to what they're saying and figure out where it's coming from and why they're saying it, it'll save you a lot of time in the long run for that conversation because some people just want to talk to you. They don't want you to solve their problems. They just want somebody to listen. And you don't know that if you're only listening on that rebuttal level where you're only trying to figure out what you need to say back to them to fix their issue. That's a really interesting point that you just brought up when you said that some people don't want you to listen to solve their issue. Um, a couple episodes ago, I had a psychologist, Dr. Susan Hannon, on, and mm -hmm. she talked about some research that she did uh, around two strategies that we have for um, emotional regulation. And one of those is is that people just want 
validation. They just want you to, to listen to what they're saying. They don't want you to provide the silver lining. And of course, then the other is providing that silver lining. So um, that just reminded me um, of, of something that she said. But you also talked about these levels of listening, levels mm-hmm. one through five. Can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So when you're at level one, we call it intermittent listening, meaning that you're only listening until you get the gist of what someone is saying. Then you're back to looking at your phone or, you know, whatever else you're doing uh, and not paying attention to them. You just, you know, you want to be able to say to them, oh, yeah, I'm listening. I hear you because I know what you're talking about, but I don't really I'm not I'm not involved in what you're saying. So I'm not really listening. I'm just getting the gist of it. Then that second level is listening for um, rebuttals. That's where most people live. And if you think about any relationship you've ever had, when your significant other starts talking to you about a problem that they're having, what you want to do is you want to fix it for them. So instead of just listening to what they're saying, maybe they just want to vent. Maybe they've already really figured it out. They're just telling you, wow, this is what happened today. You don't know, because if you're only listening for rebuttals, you're only listening for whatever you can add to that conversation when they finally stop talking. And that is the most communication, the most problematic communication issue between two people, especially in a relationship is that they're only listening for rebuttals. So when you get up to that next level of listening, you're listening for why they feel the way they feel. You know, why? What's what's happening that's making them feel this way? That's just that next level up. Whereas if you could just get there instead of listening for automatically what you're going to say back to that person, just listening for why are they telling you this in the first place? Because they may just be telling you this because they need to vent to somebody. And you don't really have to respond. You just have to say, wow, seems like you had a really tough day. That's all they need to hear, that you understand. You heard what they said and you understood that it really made their day lousy. That's all they want to know. That's all they want to hear. But if you're not going above that rebuttal, you don't get there. Um, that fourth level of listening is just a little bit deeper. Um Essentially, you're not only just listening for why they're feeling the way they're feeling, you're listening for what is motivating that. Um, what is motivating them for the whole fact they actually even brought up this conversation? You know, what they're talking to you about here in depth, how they feel about what they're saying, not just why they're saying it, how they feel about it. Then you're up on that, the, the total highest level empathetic listening. You're listening for their whole, what we call life narrative. You're listening for, you know, how is this happening with them? And why is this happening with them? And really, when you're at that level of listening, that's where you have to be in a hostage negotiation. Because when you're listening to the person on the inside, in order to let them know you understand them, you have to understand their life narrative. And the only way you get that is by listening. Most people don't have to listen at that level. And if you try to stay at that level all the time, you'll be exhausted. You won't want to interact with anybody because it, it does wear you out. So if you can stay around level three, level four, if you need to be, you're good. But if you're in the middle of a serious situation or a serious negotiation, you should be way up here listening for their entire life narrative. Why Why do they even think the way they do? How does this fit into their world? What does their world look like? That was fascinating for me. Um, first of all, I have to admit the entire time that you were explaining the tears of listening, I was ready to tell you that I hang out between levels two and three. And that's exactly like, that makes complete sense, right? Because I was just, <laughs> I was listening, I was listening for a rebuttal or I was listening for a chance to um, think about how I could transition this conversation to the next topic. Right. But like, that's right. exactly what you were saying. Like most people only have that, have those shallow levels one through three of listening um, because yep. levels four and, and, you know, as you get to the top of the totem pole become so exhausting, you can't sustain those levels of listening for long periods of time. So you kind of have to reserve them for, 
right. the most um, involved conversations, if you will. Right. As long as you're aware of the levels, if you're aware of those levels of listening and you're aware, like you just became now self-aware of where you were on that scale by me talking to you about it. And you were just thinking about, yeah, okay, I'm running this podcast. I got to figure out where we're going to go after this. And yeah, I get that. And the thing is with, with rebuttal listening, you're listening how it fits into your world and your narrative. You're not listening for them. Yeah. So it's when yep. you get to that third level, you're listening more for them than for yourself. And that's what most people need. They need you to listen for them, not for how it affects you or how you feel about it. That's that's so true because I I am a silver lining guy, right? Like through and through. Whenever somebody's venting to me, I am listening to provide a silver lining because that's what I would want. But that doesn't mean that's what that that person wants. So that's a really really important distinction, and I'm I'm glad we clarified that point. Um, Sandy, what are some of the best questions that you can ask to understand? The, the fifth level of listening to understand somebody's situation and how they arrived at where they are? It's not really about asking questions. Um, we don't believe in asking questions because questions make people feel like they're being interrogated. So what we do instead is we use a label or a mirror with an upward, with an upward inflection that implies we want more information without us using one of those question buzzwords. So, Basically, what I'm going to put an upward inflection on is what information I'm receiving from you, because a label is that verbal observation of what's happening on the other side. And then when I want more information about that, it'll it'll come across better for them for you to send them in that right direction by doing an upward inflecting label. Oh, it, it, it seems like you may have an idea where we're supposed to go with this. That's that label. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you avoid asking peppering those direct questions in there. People are going to be more willing to talk to you because they don't feel interrogated. And it's funny because we do an exercise in the, in the events that we go to, we do an exercise called the, the passions exercise. So we have people, you know, pair up and we basically say, you can ask someone two questions. What are you passionate about? And what about that makes you passionate? And then from then on, you can only use labels and mirrors and you try to see how far you can push them off the X. So if they, if they like, um, um, ice skating, you're going to see how far you can push them off of ice skating. And how you do that is you think about what they're not saying. You know, what brought them to ice skating? How did they get to ice skating? Was it a family thing that they did? Does that mean they enjoy family time? And you label those things. It seems like ice skating was an important event for Mm -hmm. you and your family. Mm -hmm. And then they, then you're off the ice skating X, you're way over here with family now and you're getting more in-depth information about them. And they're just like, Oh yeah, because people love to talk about themselves. So if you can give them a nice label and a nice segue to give you more information, they'll go there. So that's how we get information. Got it. Okay. So if I'm following correctly, um, labeling is, is is effectively just a segue into the next conversation in order to get somebody to tell you more about their experience, tell you more about how they're feeling in that moment. That's, I mean, that's one of the things, that's one of the ways we do that. Another thing about labeling that's really important is it helps people feel understood because when you, especially and there's different things you can label, you can label an emotion, which is where most people start because it's the easiest thing for us to pick up on as far as human nature goes. Because if I give you a look like this, what is that? How would you label that? You look confused. Yeah. So, and you can say if somebody, if you're watching somebody and you're gathering that information with your eyes and you see somebody kind of go, Oh, it seems like something I just said made you upset. You label the dynamic that you're seeing. You label the emotion that you're seeing. You label the circumstances. 
it seems like the fact that you went to the dry cleaners and they were closed really did not set your day off right. <laughs> That's just a circumstance. And you label it. And then they're going to go on about that. Absolutely right. I had to have that jacket for dry cleaning for the, you know, and they're going to go off and you're going to say, okay, whatever they give you next, you're going to label next. Mm. You have to remain a blank slate, which is another thing with the levels of listening. If you have to kind of maintain that blank slate and put yourself all in for the other side. And no matter what they're saying or doing, they're right and you're wrong. And this is the part that people definitely have a problem with. When you're dealing with someone, no matter what they're saying, you want them to feel like they are right, they are right, they are right. If there's a problem happening in the relationship or the conversation, you fall on the sword and take the blame because that's going to keep the other person in a nice positive state where they're going to keep talking to you. But if you, if you start saying, well, it's your fault because you did this, then you're attacking them. And when you're both attacking, Chernobyl. I mean, you're not going to have a good conversation because when you attack somebody, they go on the defensive their amygdala gets activated. And when the amygdala gets activated, you go into, you know, fight or flight or freeze, but mostly fight or flight. So mm -hmm. th the conversation stops there. And if you, you know, if you've got both people in that situation, the conversation can go nowhere at that point because you both have scrambled eggs in your brain mm -hmm. because you were on the attack and no conversation is happening there. So when you get attacked, you kind of just have to take a deep breath and label what's happening. It seems like something I just said um, has, has made you upset. seems like I'm failing to understand something that's important to you and let them fill it in. In other words, yep. Fall on the sword. It's not about you. It's about them. Yep. That's diffusing the situation right there. Yes, yep. absolutely. So it seems like you, in order to be an effective communicator and effective negotiator, and probably most importantly, an effective listener, you really need to leave your ego aside. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, you just have to remember that whatever is happening, no matter what the situation is, it's not about you. If you concentrate all your efforts on the other person and make them the center of your universe at that moment, you're going to have the best conversation of your life because they're going to be very open to giving you whatever information that you want. It's going to make them feel good. It's going to make them feel understood. And then the best thing about that is once you've gotten the rapport built with tactical empathy and you have that trust-based influence with tactical empathy, then you get to reciprocity because you can't expect to receive empathy from anyone else until you've given it first. But then mm -hmm. if they've felt understood and listened to 99.9% .9 of the time, they're going to reciprocate and do the same for you. But you just have to be patient <laughs> and you know make them feel good first. And then they'll turn around and, and try to do the same for you. Is that what mirroring is? Just reciprocity? No. Um, reciprocity is what you hope for. You don't always get it because it depends on the other side. Yeah. But you have to go with the mindset of it, it, if you don't get it, it's okay. Um, it's what you would like, especially if you're trying to do a negotiation because you want both sides to have a good outcome. So you hope that that reciprocity is there. And usually when you put enough empathy into it, it does come there. Mirroring is actually um, it's a lot simpler than it sounds. But with mirroring, you're actually saying back to the person the last one to three words that they said to you or something in the conversation. If we have three sentences worth of information that we've exchanged between us and something that I want to hear more about was in the middle sentence that you said, as soon as you stop talking, I'm going to mirror something from that sentence. And it's one to three words. The problem with mirroring is some people are really, really good at it. And some people, do, some people are really, really bad at it. And the reason they're bad at it is because they use a whole paraphrase. They repeat back a whole sentence that someone says to mirror. And that's not what you do. You pick a few key words and that's it. 
um, and you upward inflect them if you want more information. You downward inflect to demonstrate understanding. So if you're going for the last one to three words, you can say one to three words, like give me more information about that. Or you can say one to three words, like, ah, oh, I get what you're saying. I understand. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, it's great for rapport building and it definitely lets people know you're listening because you're using their words. So they know that they're being heard. Right. And so it's almost another, it's almost another way of like, um, bringing back an important part of the, the discussion and the negotiation that you want to harp on while yep. not seeming like you're trying to control the conversation. Because if you're just bringing back something that somebody said previously, maybe two or three minutes ago, to them, it's just going to seem like, oh, they're actually understanding me. And this is something that I just brought up. So let's go, let's mm-hmm. go back and visit that. Exactly. And some people are saying, well, if I mirror something from, you know, five sentences ago, isn't that going to be like a thought pattern interrupt for the other side? No, it's not because it's what they said. All you're doing is mirroring something that they already said. So they're prepared to go there because they already said it. So you're just leading them in that direction. Mirroring is also really good if you're dealing with an assertive person who really, really likes to talk and you're getting a lot of information, but it's not what you want. You wait until they take a breath because everyone has to breathe at some point. And then you just throw a quick mirror in there and you can send them the direction you want them to go in and let them keep talking that way for a while. Because sometimes people will, you know, when you've given them the illusion of control and they feel like to keep it, they need to keep talking, but they're not giving you what you want. You want something from a different area. You wait till they take a breath and then you mirror them in that direction. And then you can start gathering the information that you really want. So it's a great way actually for you to control the conversation, giving the other side the illusion that they're actually controlling it because they're doing all the talking. It seems to me like body language and tone of voice, and you keep mentioning negative inflection, positive inflection. It seems like these things play such a critical role in having an effective conversation and an effective negotiation. What kind of obstacles do negotiations over the phone or via Zoom call or something that's not in person, what kind of obstacles do those present towards, um, you know, having this skill set? It's not so much obstacles as it is something that you need to get used to. Because Mm -hmm. for me, over the phone is not a big deal. I'm attuned to listening over the phone because that's what I did as a police officer. So actually doing these things over Zoom when someone is on camera or doing these things face-to-face gives you a leg up because you can see more. You can gather more information when you can actually see that person. It's better over the phone than it is digital. These days, people love their email. They love their chats. They love their texts. They don't like to do voice-to-voice. At minimum, in order for you to have the effect on the other side that you're trying to have, you need to go voice-to-voice because your tone of voice is the most important thing in your conversation because first of all, it's the first thing someone notices about you. So it could turn them off or on right away. And it also can dial someone up and dial someone back. So if I were to come at you yelling right now, you you would, first of all, you'd be a little shocked because you kind of say the hell is happening here, but you, your brain would scramble a little bit and you'd be wondering what the heck is happening. So what happens is I just scrambled up your brain because I yelled at you, which means you can't hear anything I say right now because your amygdala has been activated. And I can't reach that logical part of your brain, which is that prefrontal cortex, which is where all the logic happens. If I fire up your amygdala, that doesn't work. So if I come at you with a nice, what we call accommodating tone of voice, when you're like, you know, hi, how you doing? That's where we've been the whole time we've been talking. Mm -hmm. 
if we're in the middle of a conversation, you want somebody to pay close attention to something that you're about to say, you're going to go into what Chris calls the late night FM DJ voice. This is, yeah, this is something that he's perfected. Yes. And he's amazing at it. And the problem is he has a certain tone of voice that allows him to do it a certain way. And when he does it, his voice actually comes across a little bit whispery. So when people try to emulate that, sometimes they go into a tone of voice, especially if you're a woman, that's not the best place to be in an analyst voice. If you get too whispery, it comes across as a voice that women don't want to really put out there, especially in a business context. So it's something that you really need to practice. Because to do an analyst voice, all you're doing is you're lowering your voice down an octave, slowing your rate of speech, enunciating every word perfectly clearly. And that will have someone's attention focus right in on you because your brain picks that up. Your brain says, wait a minute, something just changed. This must be important. And they'll focus in on you. So in the middle of a negotiation, if you're in a business negotiation, you're going to be 80% of the conversation is going to be in what we call the accommodating voice, the nice, friendly voice. When you get to your pitch or your ask, that's when you're going to lower that octave, slow your rate of speech down. And that's when you're going to say all the important stuff. And the fact that your voice changed has people kind of honing in on what you're saying because that change happened and they recognize it. They don't realize they recognize it. They just know, wait a minute, something's different. And so they're going to focus in on you and that's how you get their full attention. So you can dial someone up, you can dial someone down with your tone of voice. And people don't understand that. It's the number one tool in your toolbox, honestly, because people don't really care what you're saying. They they care how you're saying it. Um, and I've seen, I've seen some people on the team say things to people that weren't things they wanted to hear, but because they used a really good tone of voice, the person was okay hearing it. So it doesn't matter what you say if you say it in the right tone of voice. The parallel that I'm drawing is that it's almost like when an author highlights or italicizes or bolds a certain section of a paragraph for you to pay particular attention to that. Mm-hmm. That has the same effect as you slowing down your words, enunciating every single letter. Um, it draws a, it draws attention when they do that. Um, we, we have debates with people about this all the time because people say, well, I can send an email and say the same thing in an email that I can voice to voice. Well, do black letters on a white background actually have a tone? No, you can give them a tone by italicizing. You can give them a tone by putting in all caps because people understand what that means. But essentially it's not the same as your actual tone of voice. Because when you send someone an email, when you write a book, even if you put those things in the book, the tone is actually given by the reader. So whoever's reading that communication is the one who's going to assign tone to it. So if they're in a bad mood when they're reading it, even if they're seeing the italics, even if they're seeing the bold, they're going to have a different take on it than if they were in a positive mood when they read it. So the person who's reading whatever you're sending them is the one that's going to assign tone to it. You don't have control over it at that point. You only have control over it if you're voice to voice because you can control how they receive it when you're putting it out there with your voice. Got it. So it's even more powerful than when an author is italicizing or bolding, right? Because you can't control the voice that's in somebody's head. Right. When you're just reading something. Which is why we tell people all the time, push people to a voice to voice. It's more important for them to be able to hear your voice than it is for you to get a message across in written form. So, I mean, our skills are effective in an email. They're not as effective as they could be if you're voice to voice. 
That's why I really like the term tactical empathy, right? Because it, it actually it actually makes complete sense once you start to have a, a handle on some of these um, concepts and skills that you guys are, are really pushing out there, right? Because mm-hmm. at first I was that was one of my big questions for you, like what is tactical empathy? I guess it's strategic kind of empathizing with the other side, but it makes complete sense when you're talking about labeling, mirroring, your inflection, um, body language, all these things, right? Exactly. It's calibrated. That's what people don't understand. And and also people take it negative because they see the word tactical. And so when you hear the word tactical, you think long guns and ninja suits, which makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> so, you know, you really kind of have to get them past that because tactical just basically means that it's done on purpose. It's calibrated. You're you're doing it on purpose to get a response. So and you can control that, which you know, you can't control a lot of things in life, but you can control how you respond or react to another person and you know tactical empathy kind of guides you towards that Mm -hmm. and just to go back to something that you said earlier um you said interrupting a thought pattern what is that um a thought pattern interrupt that's what people i mean that's when you totally take somebody out of the the range that they're in and you take them in a completely opposite direction that they're unprepared for And people always feel like our skills do that, but our skills don't do that because the skills that we use are predicated on the information that we get from you. Meaning we're not going to go someplace that you're not already taking us. Um, Now, if, if there's a certain direction we want you to go in, we'll use what we call calibrated questions. And that's kind of, um, I forget one of the questions you asked me. Oh, how do you tell someone that they're wrong? Um, You don't, for one thing. (laughs) You don't come out and say you're wrong. What you do is you start asking them calibrated questions that lead them to where you are so that they can see what the answer should be without you telling them that they're wrong. The great thing about that is because you didn't give them any information, all you did was ask them questions to lead them to shape their thoughts. They feel like they got it by themselves. They feel like they came to it on their own because you didn't actually give them information you led them with calibrated questions Mm. and shaped their thought so instead of telling someone that they're wrong ask them calibrated questions that get them to the to the conclusion you want to draw them to through their own brain power which can be challenging calibrated questions can be challenging for some people for sure yeah it's it's definitely a skill that needs to be refined over time and oh um, yeah yeah, I'm, I'm actually really glad that you brought that point up because um, it was something that I wanted to ask you because I, I feel like the conversation was heading that way anyway. But mm-hmm. that question of the right way to tell somebody that they're wrong was inspired by Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there was an interesting portion of that book where um, I can't remember the exact phrasing of the quote, but it was basically saying exactly what you just said, right? Like you don't blatantly tell somebody that they're wrong and then go in to correct them. Because while that might be great for your ego and your own self-esteem, that's not great for the conversation. That's not great for any negotiation because it's going to make somebody be on the defensive. Instead, like you said, you want to ask these questions that kind of probe them and make them believe that they came to this conclusion themselves. Exactly. Right. Which is a skill to have, right? Because your your natural inclination as like a human being is when you when you're more knowledgeable about something than somebody else might be, share that knowledge with somebody else and just correct them when they're wrong. Right? Like right. We're, we're all just we all just do that because of who we are. But this mm-hmm. is something that you need to work on if if your main goal is to just be a better communicator, a better negotiator. Right. And th- these things do take all of our skills 
take time. They're, they're, first of all, they're awkward when you haven't been using them. Um, they feel completely counterintuitive because your brain doesn't have a map to use these skills. It's going, what are you doing? This is crazy. I don't understand. So, um, with our skills, in order for you to even get started with some kind of a habit, you need to do 64 to 67 repetitions of whatever mm. skill you're trying to get better. That's just going to start to pave that neural pathway. That doesn't mean you're really good at it. That doesn't mean you know what you're doing. It means that your brain is starting to understand what you're trying to do. So we always tell people, um, you're going to feel awkward, but it's okay because when you feel awkward, you actually go into a state of accelerated learning because your brain wants to make you comfortable as soon as possible. In order to do that, it works overtime to pave that pathway for you if you're practicing like you should be. And that makes a lot of sense intuitively too, because if you're in an awkward, uncomfortable situation, you're going to try to course correct as, as quickly as possible. And so if you ever make that same mistake again, it's just going to click in your mind and just, and you'll think to yourself, oh, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. I need to do this instead. Exactly. And also yeah. we encourage you to make mistakes because that's how you learn. If you're doing everything perfectly all the time. The first time you make a mistake, it's going to overwhelm you. If you just throw it out there, throw caution to the wind and start using these skills and don't worry about the mistakes that you're making, you'll actually learn faster. Not to mention these skills are all very forgiving and it's very easy to back off of. If I said, you know what, it, it seems like you're angry and you go, I'm not angry. Then I'll say, okay, I didn't say you were angry. I just said, it seems like you're angry. It's very easy for you to kind of back off of mm -hmm. if you've got a good tone of voice. That's, it's all predicated on having the proper tone of voice. If you cannot have control over your own voice, then that's when you, you may have a problem because that tone is, is very important. You know, how you say something is five times more important than what you're actually saying. There's a quote that reads, negotiations are won by whoever cares less. <laughs> Can you share your perspective on this? Um, I believe that negotiations are actually won by whoever demonstrates that they care more. Hmm. Um, because when you think about tactical empathy, which is what we're based on, empathy doesn't mean you like someone, doesn't mean you agree with them, doesn't mean you even have to be nice to them just means you have to demonstrate an understanding of their worldview. So it doesn't, it's not a, you know, you don't win because you don't care. And I understand the premise behind that. It's like, if you go in not caring, you can't be disappointed, which means you don't feel like you're lost, mm -hmm. but that doesn't really get you anywhere, you know? But if you go in and you demonstrate how much you care for the other side, that's going to get you further. So it doesn't, no, I mean, and this is the part that people say sounds bad with the black swan group. They say, well, that's manipulative. If you don't really care, then, you know, it's manipulative. Well, you're not going to genuinely care about every person you meet. You might care about the interaction that you're having and you might on some level care about them, but with empathy, you can demonstrate a level of awareness and a level of understanding and a level of care that will make them feel good. And that's, that's kind of the basis of communication, right? <laughs> People want to feel good when they talk to you. If they don't feel good when they talk to you, they're not going to want to talk to you. People want to feel good when they talk to you. Mm -hmm. I would argue that's a huge part of being likable. Yes, absolutely. What are, what are some of the techniques and um, practices that people can implement in their own lives in order to come off as more likable and therefore have more people inclined to have conversations with them and listen to what they're saying? Well, tone of voice is key. Um, 
Some people have a cranky tone of voice. And if you think for a second, you're going to think of one person in your life like, oh yeah, that person had a cranky tone of voice <laughs> and it, it turned you off immediately. So, um, you know, you want to be able to, to speak to people in the right tone. You want to demonstrate that understanding for people that you want to sit there and listen to them, that you're in it with them. You want to focus all your energy on them. And one thing we like to say is the most interesting person in the room is the person who's more interested about everybody else. And you become the most interesting person in the room because nobody knows anything about you because you've literally gone around the room letting everyone else talk about themselves, which makes people feel good. If you try to insert yourself into everything, if you use the word I too much, you're making it about yourself. And when you make it about yourself, it, it sends the wrong message. It's like you don't care about them because you're making it all about yourself. Yeah. And I think the biggest, um, not to use the word I, (laughs) (laughs) but the biggest takeaway from this conversation has been that my, my entire understanding of likability, right. And I think this is common for a lot of people is that it comes down to being inquisitive, right. Which is on the right track, but not necessarily right. Because what you're saying is if I'm following correctly, you want to make the conversation about the other person. You want to get them talking about their experiences, their feelings, et cetera. But you don't want to only be asking questions to get there, right? Right. You don't like- In fact, you want to avoid that. In right. Fact. Right. You just, want, you just want to lead the conversation. You want to guide the conversation in a way where they feel inclined to unpack things on their own rather than feeling like you're kind of prying. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. People- People don't like to feel interrogated. So if you avoid questions, you can still get information by using labels and mirrors and you come across more likable in that sense because they don't feel like they're being pumped by you for stuff they may not want to tell you. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Because they don't feel like you're intruding. Right. Right. That does make right. sense. Yeah. And people, um, people get a little bit confused because they feel like we're tricking people, but we're, we're really not. There's sometimes in your life, you have to show empathy to somebody who you really feel nothing positive toward. Um, and what comes to mind for me is I was a sex crimes detective. So mm-hmm. I had to, you know, interview suspects and they're not going to talk to me if I'm not likable. Right. So <laughs> I have to show empathy toward them, which was very difficult because let's face it. They're, they're, not the best people. And so when you're trying to interview someone and you're trying to, you know, get that trust-based influence and build that rapport, it's hard to do. It's hard to actually be likable to someone who you really don't care two bits about because they're a horrible criminal. But if you want to make it work, that's what you have to do. So if I can do it with rape suspects, then you can do it with, with everyday Joe with a unit across on the street. You don't have to like them. You can be nice to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. The biggest thing is about being nice. Yep. And that's not, not really fake. It's a concession that you're making. Um, Derek likes to say listening is the cheapest concession you can make to another person. It doesn't cost you anything to listen. And it's very simple to listen. And you're getting information when you listen. And you're actually more in control of a conversation when you're listening. So it's not really about um, 
you know, manipulation in that sense. We're going for influence and we're going for a trust-based influence. You cannot get a trust-based influence if you're manipulating someone because people know when they're being manipulated, they can feel it. So in order to get that trust-based influence, you, you know, you demonstrate understanding and you let them feel like you're caring for them. And like mm-hmm. their, their opinion is the only one that matters in the world. It may not be, but for the moment that you're talking to them, it is. Yeah. And you, and you certainly have to make them feel like that's what you believe. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to like somebody in order to be a good listener. You don't right. have to like what they're saying. Mm-mm. And to, 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 you know, use that empathy. You, you don't have to like them. You don't have to agree with them. This is, <laughs> this is probably a bad direction to go. But when you're talking about politics with another person, mm-hmm. most people want to go in and argue their point. They want the other side to listen. They don't care what the other side has to say. They don't care what they think. A better way for people to argue politics is to be on the listening end. Um, you know, I don't always agree with everyone, but everyone has the right to have their say. And so if we could get people that are divided in this country to kind of care more about what's happening on the other side and where they're coming from and what their motivation is and why this is so important to them. It's going to go a lot deeper than if we just argue back and forth about I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. If that's all you're saying, you can't hear the other side. There will never be a middle ground. And that's what people don't understand. I don't have to like someone whose opinions are different than mine. I just have to listen to them. Mm-hmm. And, and, care about what they're saying and then figure out through my deep levels of listening, what their life narrative is and why that makes sense to them because they might have a very good reason for why it makes sense to them and why their vision is different than mine. But I don't understand it. If all I do is preach and scream and holler and pitch my gain and my purpose and my beliefs. So there's a big lesson people can learn from it, I guess, just employing a little empathy. Yeah. I think that was actually a great example. And for the record, there are no bad directions on this podcast. No. And the thing is, i that's the thing. When I was a teacher, mm-hmm. teachers are not supposed to let their students know right. what side they're on. They're supposed yep. to open up their minds to hear everything and make their own opinions. And so um, the students in my class very rarely knew where I stood on different issues because I didn't make that plain. I basically used calibrated questions to get them to think about where they were and how they felt about it. And if everyone would kind of take that tact instead of trying to push your agenda down someone else's throat, find out why their agenda is different than yours. What makes them tick? What makes them think that way? What's their motivation? Um, That's actually more important. Where their opinion is coming from is more important actually than what their opinion is. Yeah. Such a critical component of, of being an effective negotiator and really just being a, a better listener that everybody can take away. It's just like, I'm getting the sense that it has so much to do with separating your 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 need to share your identity and your ego and push that down other people's throats, right? And I think that's where like politics is actually a fantastic example for this, right? Because it, it becomes so hard when people are frustrated and angered by certain issues for them not to project their their thoughts on somebody else when they're when that other person is just answering a question or just sharing what they believe to be true. Right. Right. And tolerance is key. Um, you know, you can't, you can't have a trust-based influence over someone whose opinions you can't even tolerate. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, and the key to having a trust-based influence is not to change the other person's opinion to match yours. It's to understand what their opinion is and where it's coming from. That's all you need to do. You don't have to change them to believe what you believe. You just have to understand where their belief is coming from. Is it fair to say that the best negotiators have thick skin? Oh, absolutely. Because, well, for two reasons. One, because you're going to get attacked. Whenever you're in a difficult conversation um, or a negotiation, your chances of getting attacked are pretty high. So you have to be able to deal with that attack. And if you're somebody who has very thin skin, who can't tolerate the least little bit of negative stuff being said to you, it's going to be hard for you to come out okay in a negotiation or a difficult conversation. You have to be able to get past how you feel about what someone says to you and concentrate more on where that feeling is coming from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It can't feel like a personal attack. It has to just be, you have to just take it at face value. Yeah. And you have to figure out what the motivation is. Okay, what what am I saying or doing that is causing that attack? Because it's coming from somewhere. It, they have a motivation for it. They, there's a why behind that attack. You just have to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. And staying curious is the only way you can do that. And arguing your point is not going to help. Yeah, which becomes very difficult to do when it's somebody that you're really close to, that you care about, that like that knows you on a personal level, right? And I think that's where people mm-hmm. get tripped up with this stuff. Um, it becomes so difficult to separate your identity and ego from the conversation that you're having and, and to not feel attacked too. So oh, yeah. I Absolutely. think that's, that's the tricky part of, and, you know, kind of teetering that, um, that fine line. Well, I, I can tell you that at the black swan group, we're not all good at it hundred percent of the time either. Mm-hmm. There are times when I go out and I completely lose my mind and somebody does something to me and I'm like, Hey, knock it off. And, and I, because it's just a hu- it's a human nature response. You can't be perfect all the time. And if mm-hmm. you expect that from yourself, you're going to let yourself down. You have to know that um, you should be thinking more about the other side, but you're also a human being. You want to be heard and understood also. So you kind of have to regulate that a little bit. Um, and there has to be people in your life that you can call and vent to. So, I mean, at the Black Swan Group, that's kind of what we do for each other. I can Derek and I have worked together for... 20 some years. We've been together for a long time because we came from the same police department. He was my team commander. He's one person I can call up and say, ah, Derek, blah, blah, blah. And I can just word vomit all over him. And he's like, okay, okay. He, he lets me be the person who's being understood and heard at that point. And then there are other times when he'll call me up and do the same thing. So you have to have those people in your life where you cannot be perfect with, where you can say, you know, oh my gosh, this is making me so mad. And you should, and you can vent. And that's part of actually having a good mindset is before you go into a conversation that's going to be difficult or a negotiation, you vent on people around you who can hear it to get it all off your chest before you go in there and have to hold on to it. So that seems like a good way to get that frustration out before the fact so that you don't let that spill over into that important negotiation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sandy, why is it especially important for women to learn how to negotiate? I think it's weird because I don't necessarily think it's important for them to learn how to negotiate. I think that women are naturally more empathetic because it's just the way it's been through history. Um, we were the weaker sex. I mean, I'm just being honest. Don't nobody send hate mail, but women were the weaker sex. I mean, you know, we, we were in caveman times. We were the ones taking care of stuff and the guys were out hunting because we are biologically less strong in most cases. I'm not saying that's hundred percent of the time. I'm just saying, we were considered the weaker sex. So in order for us to get anything that we wanted, 
to, to have anything that we wanted, we had to use empathy. So women have been naturally using empathy basically throughout time. And so now it's been a slow roll, but we're up in, in positions of power now. So the problem with that is a lot of women feel like they need to act like the men and be aggressive and be assertive. And that's how they're going to make it in the world. And that's not the truth. If you stick with your natural instincts to nurture and be empathetic, you're going to go a lot further. Um, so using the skills that the black swan group espouses will actually give you better results and better outcomes when you're in a negotiation. Now, having said that, there are times when a woman is in the room with an all, a group of all men and she doesn't feel like she's being heard. So at that point in time, if you're, if you're one of these women who's, you know, you're, say you're in a big corporation and you're, you know, you're, you've come up in the world and you're doing really well and you're one of the higher people in the company. But when you go to the negotiation table or the conference table, there's you with five men around and that's it. If you have a problem feeling like you're being heard, which is a problem for people because everyone wants to be heard and understood. You need to get one of those people to be your advocate. You need to get one of those people to kind of be on your side and throw it to you in the room. Oh, it seems like Sandy might have something to say to open that door for you. And that sucks. And should you have to do that? No, but it is what it is. Um, the thing that, that kind of bothers me is that women say, well, I shouldn't have to do that. Well, you're right. In a perfect world, you shouldn't have to do that. But the problem is this is where we are right now. <laughs> so are you going to complain about it or are you going to do what works? That's your choice, really. You know, you can, you can complain about it not being equal and not being fair. You can go out and say, okay, this is how I can make it equal and fair and do what you need to do. Um, it's kind of like if you demand all that attention and you demand this and you demand that, you're coming across as assertive and you get the bitch label. And that's horrible, but that's what happens. So remember, likability is key. You want to be likable. Um, but at the same time, you have to show some strength as a woman. And there's a fine line that you have to walk there. And the best way to do it is to get one of those other five people to see you as a human being and to, to segue for you, to, to kind of get you in and to get you able to speak. And then once... Once everybody at the table realizes that you have things to offer and you have things to say and you're not going to come across as assertive and try to take over, then they'll listen to you. And it's an arduous process and it's a pain in the butt. And it does make women upset to think, feel like they have to do that. But we've come a long way. And if we get up top and start screaming and hollering and pounding on our chest and screaming, I am a woman, hear me roar, that's not going to get us anywhere. Yep. That's the unfortunate reality. And then there's like you alluded to, there's two types of people, right? Either you can play the victim or you can take it for what it is and just make the best of the circumstance. Yeah. Take what you've got and work with it. That's, yep. you know, I mean, talk about, I mean, being a woman in law enforcement, I started back uh, in 1989. Yep. There were less women in law enforcement and it was a hard road for the first five or six years. I'm not going to lie because there were a lot less women. But if you look at law enforcement these days, there are a lot more women involved. Um, you know, and it's not just a man's world anymore, especially because before everybody saw police officers, you have to be strong, you have to be ready to fight. Well, no, that's really not the best way to be. The best way to be is to be somebody that who can talk, <laughs> who can listen, who can communicate really, really well. And, and then you don't have to go to blows physically so much if you can use your voice to handle things. So that's where women kind of have the upper hand and that's where they do really well in law enforcement. So it's, it's all in how you look at it. 
It's all in where you want to be and whether or not you want to pave your own road or you want people to pave that road for you because you shouldn't have to pave it. It's your choice. Bottom line being, everybody wants to be heard. Everyone wants to feel like they're being listened to. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the way you do that is through tactical empathy and looking for that reciprocity, especially if you're a woman. Put empathy out there first and then it will be reciprocated. But if you just demand what you want and you don't use empathy to get there, you're not going to have that reciprocity. People aren't going to feel like they owe you anything. So, you know, it's what you're left with. When life gives you lemons. <laughs> so, okay. I'm, I'm a very assertive person. I don't know if you can tell that or not, but I'm, I'm a naturally assertive person. No way. I am totally. Um, <laughs> so when you say that, my, my first inclination is the answer that you want, which is make lemonades. Uh, make lemonade. My my answer to that is, <laughs> people give you lemons if they don't like what you have to say. You chuck them at them. <laughs> so it's like just it's just the way you look at it in, in your mood at the time. But I am naturally assertive, which is something that's really difficult, especially as a woman, because people don't people don't take to assertion well. And we we say all the time, being assertive is pretty much always counterproductive if you're doing it in an assertive tone of voice. But you can be as assertive as you want to be if your tone of voice is correct. Mm -hmm. And that's what people don't get. People think, well, I can't be assertive if I'm using empathy. It means I can't be assertive. No, absolutely not. Sometimes you have to be assertive. You just have to do it with the right techniques and with the right tone of voice. We're not saying never be assertive because sometimes you do have to be. Yeah. Of all the tools that we've learned today, Sandy, I think that the tone of voice is really the most key and critical and powerful thing, right? Because like you just said, like your assertiveness can be perceived so differently depending mm -hmm. on how you, how you, um, how you communicate that assertiveness. Right. Yeah. So I'll, I'll share a little story about that. Um, when, when my husband and I years ago, we were buying a house and it was a house with new construction. And so we would go in there and my husband would always complain, you know, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. And he would yell at the builder and do all this stuff. And then I would go in there and say, well, you see, this is how it's going to happen. And this is what you're going to do. And you know, this is, this is basically how it's going to have to be. And so then the, the funny thing was the builder at the end of all of this came to us and said, you know, um, your husband was like a dog with a bone when it came to like yelling at us about what was happening, but you were the silent one who came up and bit me in the butt and I didn't even know what was happening. I'm like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to surprise you with my assertiveness and you're not even going to know this is being assertive because it's not going to come across that way. So that's the key. If you could provide an example for tactical empathy, I think that would be the best one, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. That's one of the ass without them even knowing it. Exactly. It's like you, yeah. they don't see you coming because you're the friendly, nice person. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, what just happened? Um, and it's, but it's not what you should do all the time. It's only when you need to have that bit of assertion in there because there are times when you need to do it. But people shouldn't feel it like a punch in the face. Yep. You know, they should feel it slipping in like, oh, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's how it's better taken that way. Because when you're aggressive and you verbally punch somebody in the face, their natural response is going to be, all right, I'm punching you back. Oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. An attack is usually met by an attack, which is why when someone attacks you, you shouldn't meet them that way because that's what they expect. And you take them off guard and you kind of thwart the attack when you don't respond the way they expect you to. Sandy, today's conversation has been so insightful. I think people are going to get a ton of value out of this one. I hope so. I hope so. I really do think so. This was like 
this is like almost a scientific approach that if you follow to the T, you will see results from. And people don't really get that because, you know, a lot of people who help you with negotiations out there will say, you have to do this, this, and this. Well, we say that, but then we also give you the skills to use to get there. And that's the thing that people are missing. People will say, you know, you should do this, this, and this in your negotiation, and you shouldn't ask that, and you shouldn't say that. But the thing is, you know, you you don't have steps, you don't have skills to use when you're hearing those people. They're just telling you what not to do. We're telling you, this is what you go out and do. You go out and use a label. You go out and use a calibrated question. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you go out and use an accusation audit. We're giving you the skills, the tools you need to actually get to tactical empathy, which is where you need to be. So, so, but I will say, if you don't mind me sticking in here, we, the, no, Black Swan, the Black Swan group does have a YouTube channel. We have so much free content out there. It's crazy. So, you know, you can, you can look at the Black Swan YouTube channel and you can listen to all the videos that talk about all the different skills. And that's really, really helpful. And, you know, reading Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss's book is really helpful too. Um, so there's a lot of ways you can get a lot of free content from us. So it's, you know, we're not out there just saying, okay, we're going to make money with this. We're out there because Chris Voss had a, kind of an epiphany early on that he wanted people to understand this communication technique. And that's what it is now. It's an overall communication technique. I can't tell you how many coaching clients I've had that come back to me and say, you saved my marriage. And that wasn't even what we were trying to do. We were trying to get him a salary increase, <laughs> and, you know, but then low stakes practice is practicing on the people who you love, your kids, your wife, or the barista at the coffee shop. That's how you get good at it. And so in doing that, I've had coaching clients come back and say, yeah, I was doing my low stakes practice. And you know what? You saved my marriage because it's a communication technique. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It feels good too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'll definitely link to it in the show notes for sure. But um, is there a place that people can get connected with you directly? I mean, you know, if they want to reach out for services, they can go through Black Swan. And if they want to get a message to me, they can also go through Black Swan. If there's an info box on our website, blackswanltd.com, and there's an info box. And if you want to get a message to me, you can send it to the info box and they'll forward it to me. Awesome. We will certainly link to Black Swan Group for anybody who wants to dive deeper into this subject. Sandy, thank you so much for your time. This was a ton of fun and you provided a ton of value today. Awesome. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it.